Let's pray together as we uh, open the word and hear it preached. Let's uh, pray to our Heavenly Father. Father, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for being a God who does not sit in the heavens, so to speak, and leave us here to wonder and to speculate and to uh, just uh, feel our own way around to try to figure things out ourselves. But thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for making yourself known. Thank you for your word. Most of all, Uh, thank you for uh, the ability we have even in our day to read it, to have it literally at our fingertips at any given time, uh, to to take in your truth, to be challenged by you, to be uh, changed by you. Father, we pray that that would take place today, that the same spirit that inspired that very text that was just read, that he would would impress it upon our hearts, that that he would give us minds to understand it and and a, a will that's eager to obey it and to do it, to follow it. Father, we thank you uh, that we can come together as a church family to worship and to come around your word, to be instructed together uh, by your word, and we pray that you would do that this morning. Father, thank you uh, for the the good gift of marriage. Thank you even for the weddings that have taken place recently of members and active uh, worshipers within our church. Uh, We pray your blessing upon those new marriages, ones that even began right here yesterday. We pray that you would show your kindness to them, uh, that they may start well, and that they may continue well in their marriage, and that you would use us as a church family to strengthen those who are married, uh, to help those who are single, to, to honor you in our relationships and in our families and in those that, uh, with those that we live with. But thank you for that gift of marriage that we've been, been able to witness many of us in recent weeks. And Father, we grieve though with those who have lost loved ones. I, I ask for uh, Virginia Bish this morning and for her family and the loss of Ken within the last week. And Father, we pray that you would give them hope as they grieve, uh, that even if joy is harder to feel and harder to obtain in these days, we pray that you would continue to give it, that you would provide a steadiness, that you would let them place an anchor of their soul down in your character uh, to know that you are good, to know that their husband, that their dad, that their grandpa is with you, that he is rejoicing, and that if they are trusting in, in his Savior, that they will someday as well. And Father, now we pray that you would again accompany your word with power, that you give us hearts that are eager to hear and to obey. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You all can be seated. Uh, You can open up your scriptures if you have a copy uh, to that text that John just read so well for us. Uh, We're in the book of Galatians. We're up to chapter 5, the end of chapter 5 actually today. And we'll have a few more sermons in this uh, wonderful book of the Bible. Uh, And then we'll share in a few weeks what we're going to do after that. But there's some exciting things that we're going to teach through from the word uh, coming into the fall. Uh, But I wanted to uh, start by referencing actually a musical of all things. Uh, There is a musical that's uh, been out for several years. It just got kind of even more popular because Disney released it on their platform recently to be able to watch. It's a musical called Hamilton. Uh, and that what, if you've not been able to watch it, if you like musicals, I think you would like it. It is different, though. It's more hip-hop music. So if that's not your thing, it might not be your thing. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching it. And my favorite character in the whole thing was this guy who played King George III. Uh, because the setting is, it's about Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of our nation, and his influence uh, and some of his personal life as well uh, as, as he was one of the founders of our nation and giving it shape. Uh, but King George was the king of Great Britain uh, in the United Kingdom uh, back then, and there's this character that every once in a while pops onto stage and does just a solo. Everything slows down, and he's very, very funny. Uh, he sings these songs, and I wanted to read the lyrics. I'm not going to sing them. A couple people told me to sing these. That guy, I can 
never rival. He has sets the bar high, and I set it low, and so I wouldn't want you to dis- disappoint you. But he sings this song uh, called What Comes Next, and it's essentially like this song he's singing to the colonies, as if they were a, uh, a girlfriend or a wife that has left him, something like that. And the setting is that the colonies have just finally won their independence uh, from him. And he's singing this song to them called What Comes Next. And one of the lyrics, a couple of the lines from it, uh, he sings this. He says, what comes next? You've been freed. Do you know how hard it is to lead? And then sarcastically he says, you're on your own. Awesome. Wow. Do you have a clue what happens now? And then he continues. And the, the point of the song that he's trying to tell them is you fought so hard to get free from me. You, you fought, you scrapped, you, we had this war even over it, so now you have your freedom, bravo, what are you going to do with it? It's not as easy maybe as you think it is, it's not as simple as you think it is. You had a certain way of life under my rule, but what are you going to do with this freedom that you've just gained? And he's act, understandably, he's skeptical that they're going to use it well. Uh, he thinks that it's going to be a train wreck. He thinks that they're going to maybe even come crawling back to him, he says. He's skeptical of how they're going to use their newfound freedom. And what's true in the political, the geopolitical sphere of nations when they find their independence the, and their freedoms that it may be hard for them is also true in, a, in the spiritual realm. Uh, that when we find and when we are granted spiritual freedom, it's important for us to think and to ask what comes next. We've been freed, we've been given freedom by God and we should praise him for that. But we need to think what have I been freed to do? What, not just what have I been freed from, but what have I been freed to, freed toward. Because the fact that we are been freed is not all that we need to know. We need to know what we've been freed for. Uh, and this has been a, a topic of great significance to the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to these churches in Galatia was this topic of freedom. And now as he gets deeper into this letter, he's trying to help them th- answer that question. What do you do with that freedom? Christ has gained it for you. He, he's helped you come out from under the law that you were enslaved to. Now what are you going to do with it? He, he's shown them you were slaves. And through the work of Jesus, you've been freed. But if you look back, if you're in chapter 5, we're not going to preach the whole chapter. We're just going to start at verse 16. But if you look back at verse 1, even of that, how he started that chapter, he, he answers that question. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And that, that's like, thanks a lot, Paul. Like, that's really helpful. For freedom, Christ has set us free. What does that mean? Uh, and he starts to elaborate some as he goes through this chapter. Uh, and then if you look down in verse 13, he, he starts to uh, give them a caution about how they may be tempted to use their freedom. In verse 13, he said this, and Pastor Larry preached from this text last week, did so well. I would encourage you to listen to that text. But just for reference sake, verse 13, Paul had told them, he said, for you were called to freedom, brothers. So he said that again. But then he says, only don't, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. And so what Paul knew to be true was this temptation that can happen for us as believers. People who've been freed from slavery to sin. He knew that we could face a temptation to use that freedom not to obey God, not to live in godly ways, but to actually use it as a way to justify my sinfulness. As a way to say, well, now I'm forgiven of all these things. I have the blessing of God. I have heaven sure for me. I have the resurrection sure for me. So I can live however I want, right? I can do however I want. It's just optional to me. And Paul knows that. That temptation is trying to head it off from the start and says, that is not why you've been freed. 
to just live however you want, to have absolute freedom to do whatever your heart uh, desires, even to sin. He tells them that they have been set free to, I would say in this text we're going to see today, he, we have been set free for godliness. We've been set free for the ability now to actually obey, to actually follow after the desires of the Spirit, to actually follow His commands, follow His leadership. And I, I would say the main point of this text in today's sermon, I would say this way, we are freed by God to follow His Holy Spirit into godliness. So we are freed by God to follow his Holy Spirit into godliness. That's what we've been freed for. Not just to have license to live as we want, but we've been freed to follow his Holy Spirit into godliness. And so this text today, verses 16 through the end of the chapter, really focuses on that issue of godliness. What does godliness look like? What, what, should, what shape should it take in our life? Where does it even come from? And so I want to share four observations from this text that I think are pertinent to this idea of godliness. That this, this godliness that we've been freed for, that we've been freed to. And so there, I want to show you first in verses 16 through 18, I would say this way, what I think Paul is saying, is that godliness is possible. Godliness is possible. And that may sound obvious to you, but it, it's not always obvious to us when we feel so chained to certain sins, when we feel like, I cannot break free of this. Like this, this thing, whatever it is, it has a hold on me. I cannot be free of it. That's tempting in our hearts to think sometimes. And Paul addresses that in the first couple verses of today's text, doesn't he? In verses 16 through 18, he, he, he tells us godliness is possible. If you look at verse 17, for example, he's describing this inner reality of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus, and he talks about it like it's a battle. Like there's almost like this war that's being waged within uh, the existence of a Christian and the internal world of a Christian. He, he says that it's between the desires of the flesh. That's what he says at the start of verse 17. So the desires, the flesh is like the old person, if you want to think of it that way, our sinful nature that we're born with. He's saying that there's certain desires that are still present in us, even as Christians, that, that want us to do certain things that would tempt us to do certain sinful acts. But he says that the combatant, the other, the opposition is the desires of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says is waging war against the desires of the flesh. And so there's this battle that happens within us. And you probably live that out. If you're a Christian, you feel that. You feel that tension at times in your life where I have these desires from the Holy Spirit, but I still have these desires of the flesh, these desires to do wrong, to, to live in selfish ways. That is a normal part of our existence as Christians. But Paul would want us to know, he wanted these Galatians to know, he'd want you to know if you're a follower of Christ, that matchup is not an even matchup. It's not even odds. It's not as if they're equal opponents that, that we just, oh, I don't know who's going to win. I don't know who's more powerful. I don't know which one is going to ultimately triumph. Because when you set the desires of the flesh and then you bring the desires of the Spirit, the Spirit should always win. He is not weak. The desires that He plants within us should be the ones that ultimately and will be ultimately the ones that triumph in the life of God's people. And, and what you see that in verse 16, his leading statement of this whole text, right? He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. And he doesn't say, and you might gratify the desires of the flesh. He says, you won't. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh if you're walking by the Spirit. And so what he wants them to know is that when Jesus came into this world, 
And he died upon the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And when he was raised up from the dead to show his victory over death, and then especially when he then sent the Holy Spirit into the lives and into the hearts of his people, a new age started. Prior to that, before the sending of Jesus, before the sending of the Spirit, that battle was a losing one for us. It was one that we couldn't, we didn't have the desires of the Spirit within us. We just had those desires of the flesh that were dominating us. That were, and we may have had some veneer of godliness, but we could not truly live lives of godliness until God sent His Spirit into our hearts. And what Paul wants them to know is when that happens, a new era starts. A new era started in the world when He sent the Spirit that first time, and a new era started in you if He has sent His Spirit into your heart. Where now it's not this even battle, but you have the Spirit of God and His desires within you. And if you follow Him, He says, you will not give in to those desires of the flesh. He wants them to know godliness is possible for you. It used to not be, but now it is. And it's important for us to know that, that the Spirit of God can do and does do what the law of God on its own cannot do. Right? They had had the, the, God's people had had the law for uh, centuries upon centuries, and they were still not living lives of godliness. They were still not winning that battle that was happening within them. But it was only when the Spirit of God was sent that, that victory could happen, that godliness could actually be achieved. Godliness could actually be possible in a consistent, true sense in their life. And so it's important for us as Christians to know this, that we are not just released from the penalty of sin when we're united with Jesus. That is glorious. I will sing about that. I love singing about that, that, that I have been forgiven, that I have been granted righteous standing with God through the work of Jesus. I've been justified. Paul has said that over and over and over again in this letter. But he wants them to know you've also been freed from the power of sin. Like, it's not that you've just been freed from the penalty of it now and for eternity, but you've been freed right now from the power of sin. You don't have to be a slave to it anymore. You don't have to give in to those temptations that you've always given into over and over and over. You have the ability to live a life of godliness by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to know as Christians that that, that battle is normal. That that battle is real. It's not something if you feel temptations well up within you or you feel a battle raging in you, that's not a sign necessarily of immaturity in you. That's a sign that you now have the spirit waging war against the battle or against the desires of the flesh. And so we need to seek help in that battle, right? We need to have brothers and sisters who can help us fight towards godliness. And we should expect victory as we do. If we're followers of Jesus, we should have confidence that God will deliver me. God can help me. God can overpower those desires of the flesh that are within me. Sin can be resisted, brothers and sisters. Like We should never feel that sin is inevitable in our life, that it's unavoidable in our life. We can be set free. I love how uh, Dr. Harmon has a forthcoming commentary on Galatians. I sent him a text just thanking him for this phrase I read in his copy of it this week. He said this. He said that the, for a Christian, the flesh can only entice, not command. That, that the, the desires of the flesh, they can entice us. They can make something appealing. They can make sin appealing in us as that old man or woman rises up. But they cannot command us. 
They cannot make us do anything. Only the Spirit of God is to be our commander and ought to be our commander. He is the one who commands us as Christians. And so that's, this text starts with great hope that godliness is possible in ways that it used to never be uh, in the lives of Christians because we have been given the Holy Spirit. But Paul takes it one step further as he gets into verses 19 through 21. And I would say his next point on godliness, I would say this way, and this is, uh, it's challenging for us, but we need to hear this. It's not just that godliness is possible, but the next step that he takes is that godliness is not optional. Godliness is not optional in the life of a Christian. Godliness is not optional for the life of someone who says they love Christ, that they say they're being led by the Holy Spirit. Godliness is not optional. And I want to show you what I mean in this text. So if you look at at verse 19 uh, and following, he talks about the works of the flesh. So he said there's this battle, right, between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. He's going to tell us what both of those things look like when we give in to those. And this first one that comes is these works of the flesh. When these desires of the flesh are given into, he tells us what it looks like. He, he tells us what our lives look like when we're being led and when we're following the desires of the flesh. And he lists them off there, doesn't he? Uh, and I don't have time to go into all of these. It's a long list. It's not a comprehensive list, right? If you look uh, down and at the end of the list, he even says that, and such a, such things, like that there's, there's things like these. It's not a bottomless list here. But he talks, the first three, for example, are related to sexuality. He says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, he leads with those. That those are things that when we're giving in to the desires of the flesh are going to become evident in our life. Then the next two are more related to wrong forms of worship. He, he lists those as idolatry and sorcery even. So there's this wrong sense of worship that comes next. Then there's a whole list, I think eight or so if I counted right, uh, that come next that are related to community life, how we relate to each other. He lists those as enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. And the final two that he actually mentions are more related to, to broader issues of self-control, whether it's with alcohol or with sexuality, feeling this there's liberty and lack of inhibition at all that, that can go away in a person's life. And he says the list could go on and on. And he says that it is evident, right? That's how he started the list. He says, those works of the flesh are evident. It's not secretive. It's not some mystery to us if to look at a person's life and say, are they being led by the Spirit or are they being led by the desires? of the flesh. It's not a mystery. It's not uh, something that's highly questionable in people's lives. He says it is evident who is your leader. It is evident which desires you are giving into. And then he gives this thunderous, this is a, a convicting, challenging statement that he gives in verse 21. After he ends that list, he says that he's warned them before, maybe when he was with them in person, starting these churches, but he says, I want to warn you again. And he says, those who do such things, or those, you may say, those who practice such things, active tense, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You want a sobering statement, that's it for you. He doesn't mince words, it's not confusing what he's saying. He's saying the people whose lives are marked by these things, the people who are giving in as a regular way of life to the desires of the flesh, he says, they will not. And I would say to you, if that's you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That, if you have read Galatians, feels like, what? 
Like, because he, he has been saying over and over to them in this letter, and this is true, that our inheritance, that inheriting of the kingdom of God, the blessing of God for eternity, is not, doesn't come because you do such things, because you follow certain laws, because you have gained good standing with God. It comes only through the work of Jesus. He has said that over and over and over again in this letter. It's not about your works. It's about Jesus' works. That's how you gain an inheritance. But here, he, it feels like he's saying something very different where he's pointing at their lives and saying, if these things are true in your life, the inheritance is not coming to you. And so he's pointing at their works, at their life. And this can feel very surprising, very confusing to us, but I, I want to explain it this way, and I think this is what Paul is getting at. He's saying that godliness is mandatory, that, that it's not just an optional part of Christian life. But in saying that it's mandatory, I was trying to think of a word, a simpler word to, to say other than this, but I'll use this word. In saying that it's mandatory, he's not saying that it's meritorious. Like he, he's saying that it is not optional for you to live a life of godliness, but the godliness that you do live, it doesn't merit you something from God. It's not like you're impressing God or like you're keeping up a good score with God to keep that inheritance secure. That inheritance was gained for you by Jesus and what he did in his life and on the cross and his resurrection. What you do doesn't add to that at all. But the way you live your life does demonstrate whether his work has been applied to you. It does demonstrate with unquestionably whether the spirit of God is in you or not. It validates, it verifies, not in something where you're, you're meriting it, but your life is demonstrating the reality and the change that has taken place in you. And he wants them to know, and he would want you to know, that godliness is not optional in your life. You do not have the luxury, any of us, to just say, I have Jesus as my Savior, but I don't have him as my Lord. I can just live how I want to live, and I'll just ride his coattails into heaven and receive his inheritance for all eternity. That is not how the kingdom of God works. Because if, the, the kingdom, if you're a part of the kingdom of God, it means that the Spirit has been given to you, that he lives within you, and you are going to slowly but surely start to follow his leadership. He's, the, the goal of, of God in his people, I would say is this, is not merely to justify us, but to transform us. Justification is glorious, that, that he declares us righteous in his sight, but he also wants to make us righteous. He wants us even right now in this life amongst the sinners of this world so they can see a changed life. He wants to, to change us. He wants to, by his Holy Spirit, to bring forth godliness in our life so people can see his power to change. And so I, I want you to hear the weight and feel the weight of this text today. And I want you to look at that list in verses 19 through 21. And it's not a bottomless list. I want you to think, are, are some of those actively present in my life? Do I get angry at people all the time? Do I envy people and constantly think about what they have and wish that I could have it and have discontentment in my heart? Do I just drink alcohol to escape my problems? Do I just drink it to, to indulge? Do I look at pornography all the time and just give in to the sexual impulses that rise up within me? And I want you to evaluate uh, the, the, the activity of the flesh in your life. 
And to know that not just that godliness is possible, not just that you can be set free from those things, but that you need to be set free from those things, that the Spirit wants to free you from these. And that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we would love to help you be freed of these things, not that we ever can obtain or should ever try to abstain, obtain a state of perfection. That's a fool's errand that you will not ever succeed at, and God doesn't call you to succeed at, right? He said there's a battle going on. The same guy who says, if you do these things, you won't inherit the kingdom. He says, there's always going to be a battle. So it's not that you need to be free from struggle, but you need to be following after the Lord and seeking to live a life of godliness. And one other thing under this point that I would say is this, is that we need to stop believing the lie that is so common in the American church that just because I or somebody else said a prayer a long time ago to Jesus and asked him for forgiveness, said that I placed my faith in him, that that, makes every, that means I am good for now and to eternity, no matter how I live, no matter how I seek to follow him or not. That is a lie from hell. And we have, many people have started to believe it, that just if I said some prayer that I felt like was maybe sincere long ago, but then my life shows nothing of obedience, shows nothing of godliness, shows nothing of the Spirit's work in my life, but I think that I'm still okay. I think that my child is still okay with the Lord. I think that my grandchild is still okay with the Lord. We are going to be sorely mistaken when it comes at Judgment Day. Because Paul says it is evident like, don't look away from it. Like, if, if the evidence of a person's life is showing they're not following the Spirit, the Spirit of God is not present in their life, they need to be called to repentance, not to be coddled and assured that they're okay with the Lord. They, they need to be called to obedience, and we ought to never just look back to the past in someone's former profession of faith and look past their present disobedience. That is foolish and unsafe for us and for other people. Paul says that godliness is not optional in our lives as God's people. The third thing, though, I think that he says, and there's just going to be four. The third thing as we continue through this text that he says about godliness that I want us to see is in verses 22 through 23. And this is where he turns his attention to, uh, he talked about what the works of the flesh are. So now he's going to say what is going to be present in a person's life when the spirit is at work, when, they're, when he's winning the battle in that person's life, when they're following his leadership. And I, I would say this point in verses 22 through 23 is that, Godliness is given by the Holy Spirit. Godliness is given by the Spirit. So Paul here is using this list, isn't he, of vices and then of virtues. That was a real common thing in ancient texts. He started with the vices, the struggles, the sins. Now he lists the virtues, the things that can become true in a person's life. And again, I won't be able to give detail on all these lists, but some of you maybe even have memorized these through songs when you were a kid. But he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he says, against such things, there is no law. I would just say a couple comments on these. One, I think it's not coincidence that he lists love first. Uh, he, he's gonna, he has said and will say again uh, in his own uh, way as Paul the same things that Jesus said, that they'll know you by your love. 
and the, that the law of God can be summed up in one word, like is love. Like love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's no coincidence Paul leads with love. It's kind of the umbrella, the foundation, if you want to think of it the opposite way, that everything else either falls under or is built upon is this idea of love. That when the Spirit of God is present in a person's life, they are motivated most fundamentally by love. By love of God and by love of fellow human beings. And I, I think also it's not a coincidence of what he lists last in this list, where he says self-control, that, that he ends with that. Because uh, the, those vices that he mentioned before, those works of the flesh, one of the common threads is that we lack self-control. We're just giving in to the impulses, the desires that rise up in us, even sinful ones. And he's saying that a person who's marked by a life of, the, of following the Holy Spirit is going to be marked by self-control. That they're going to have this newfound ability by the Spirit to resist. To not just fly off the impulses and uh, go off the leadership of their sinful desires, but to actually do what is godly. To do what the Spirit of God calls them to do. And these are fruit, I would note, the obvious here. He says these are fruit of the Spirit. That's why I said that godliness is given by the Spirit. Uh, they don't just uh, come automatically in us. They, don't, they definitely don't arise naturally within us. If these traits, these things come out in our life, it's because the Spirit of God is pumping them out through us. He, he lives within us, and He is the one pressing those out into our words. He's the one that is changing our mind. He's the one who's motivating the selfless actions uh, and the self-control that we evidence in our life. He is the source of it. We are not. They are the fruit of the Spirit. They come from a person. And when you see those things in the life of a person, when you see those within your own life, it's confirmation that the Spirit of God is within you, that He is within that person that you're watching live their life. Just as the works of the flesh are evident, the fruit of the Spirit are evident in a person's life. And I, I want you to take inventory for a moment with this list as well in verses 22 through 23, just as we did with the first list. And I want you to look at that list, and maybe you could take more time to do this later today or in the week ahead. I want you to evaluate if you see those things in your life. Is your life one presently that's marked by love of fellow Christians? Is your life one that's marked by joy? This deep and abiding joy that's not just based on the numbers in my bank account or the, the health of my body, but a joy in the Lord. Am I marked by patience and how I relate to my children or to my coworkers or to the person in front of me at the stoplight? Am I marked by uh, gentleness on the internet? That's a convicting one. And if I don't see these things, I need to, to repent of that. I need to ask the Lord to work these things in me. I, none of us have this list down. None of Jesus does, but none of us do. But as the Spirit of God works in our heart, these things should become increasingly evident. They, people, ask the people, ask, if you're married, ask your husband or wife if they see these things in your life. If you're a child, ask your parent if, if they see these things in your life. If you have a roommate, ask them if they see these things in your life. And then if there's, if there's things that are lacking that are, or that are weak, pray that the Spirit would produce these things within you, um, that, that He would work these things into your life, because we are intended to reflect Him well to the onlooking world. 
We are intended to represent him well to the people who watch the way that we live. And I'd also say as word of application at this point, before we move to the last one, we also, this teaching here about these being the fruit of the Spirit also ought to breed humility in us. Uh, that when we look at our lives, and if we do see, if you can praise God and say, I see these things growing in my life. Like, I actually have seen Him work these things in me. Do not let that go to your head. Do not let yourself start thinking, man, yeah, look at me. Like, I am doing well. Like, people need to, like, follow me and, and start to uh, have pride well up within your heart. These are fruit of the Spirit. And so if people compliment you, if they affirm you, not that you have to have some rote thing, but at least mentally remember, man, to turn the praise to him, to say, I have nothing that I haven't received. Uh, that any good that is in me is something that God has worked in me. I'm grateful that he's doing it. I'm grateful that it serves you, but it is the work of God in my life. We ought to never be prideful fruit bearers. That's not even a, a real thing, right? That, uh, but we ought to be humble fruit bearers of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And as we get to the last couple verses of this text, verses 24 through 26, I think Paul is going to take one more step further as he talks about godliness. And as we read this text today, uh, is that uh, godliness, it's not just given by the Spirit, that was the third point, but godliness is sought by us. So it's given by the Holy Spirit, but it's sought by us. We seek it. There's an activity of us, ourselves, that's involved here, right? Because the Spirit of God could just, God could have arranged things where the moment that a person is converted, that boom, all those fruit just appear instantly and permanently in their life, right? He could have done this permanent shift right then and there. Uh, he, he could have done that. He could have organized salvation history that way. But the way that he set it up is that, yes, he's the producer of the fruit in us, but he usually does it, almost always does it, by our, our own pursuit of those things. That's why there's commands given to us here, right? Throughout this text. We're told at the very beginning in verse 16 to walk by the Spirit. That's a command for us to do. We're, we're talking about us being led by the Spirit. And here as we get to the end of this text, he says that we need to keep in step with the Spirit. That, that there's this following after him. And I love verse 24. The first time I read it, I was kind of like... This seems off to me because he's talking about the flesh, those sinful desires being crucified. And when he's talked about it, talked about it, there we go. All right. When he's talked about it before, uh, he has talked about it in a passive sense that we have been crucified. Right? Like that, that the old self has been crucified, that it's dying. But here he talks about it in an active sense, right? He says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. He talks about it as like an active thing that we have done. So not that we saved ourselves, not that we converted ourselves, but when you came to a point of conversion, when you came to a point where you turned from your sin and you put your trust in Jesus, in a real sense, Paul is saying, you were crucifying the flesh. You were making a choice, motivated by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, but you were making a choice to say, that old self, I am done with it. I am not going to continue to live that way. I am crucifying it. I'm putting it to death. And it, but it's still alive, isn't it? It's still... All right. I'm just going to let these things fall. There we go. All right. One is standing. How about that? It's a, it's a fun time meeting outside. How about that? I knew it would be windy today. Uh, <laughs> applause for the wind. All right. Uh, 
But uh, this, I joked about this several weeks ago, but really in the Old Testament and New Testament, the word for wind is also the literal same word for the Spirit. And so we're talking about the Spirit of God, right? Him producing things, Him, man, him doing the work. There's a little illustration for you. Nobody did that, right? Like he blew it over. Uh, uh, but anyways, that's neither here nor there. Uh, godliness is sought by us. I'm expecting this one to fall at any moment, by the way, so don't be alarmed if it does. Uh, but godliness is sought by us. It's something that we must pursue if it's going to become a reality in our life. Uh, it's something that we are called to keep in step with. But that flesh is still alive, isn't it? We crucified it. But it's not totally dead yet. It's not totally gone yet, like it will be someday when we go to be with Christ or he returns for us. Charles Spurgeon, who many of you know I love, he said this. He said about this flesh and it having been crucified, he said, It is not yet dead, but it is crucified. It hangs upon the cross, straining to break away from the iron hold fast, but it cannot, for it is doomed to die. Happy indeed shall that day be when it shall be wholly dead. Uh, that's what he said. That, and so that, that flesh is dead, but it can still, t it's dying, I should say, but it can still tempt us. And the image kept coming to my mind. I don't know how many of you are Lord of the Rings fans. I am just finishing up reading the books. Finally, it's taken me forever, but I've watched the movies. And there's this famous scene uh, where it's been used in a weird way by a church recently. I'm not about to use it in a weird way. Uh, but Gandalf, uh, this wizard, is trying to protect these people as they're escaping from this monster called a Balrog. And they go over this, this bridge. And the, the, the people he's trying to protect get across. And then he stands on the bridge. And this monster's coming. And he just shouts at it, you cannot pass. And he puts his staff down. And this, this huge monster that was on the bridge with him, he makes this thing crumble. Gandalf the wizard does. Makes this thing crumble. And it starts falling down into the, the pit. It's dying in a sense, right? And in the movie, at least, it doesn't say this in the book, but Gandalf turns around to go, starts taking a step to go back to be with his friends. And what you see last minute is as that Balrog is falling to his doom, he had this whip that he was trying to intimidate uh, Gandalf and the others with. And you see that fiery whip come out from the darkness as he's fallen, and it wraps around Gandalf's leg and pulls him, and pulls him down into the pit. And so even as this thing is falling to its death, it strikes one last time when maybe he thought the danger was gone, and it pulls him down. And the same thing can happen with the flesh. We can think and know it's been crucified. It's, it's dying. It's dead. But it can still tempt us, and it can still bring us down, and we need to be active in fighting against it. We need to be actively continuing to put it to death and pers actively pursuing the Spirit so that He can actually make us godly. So He can actually present and bring forth godliness in us. And that's why Paul ends that text by saying we need to keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, with the, the way that we have fruit of the Spirit come, I'm waiting for this song. Mercy. We might not do a last song, by the way. I don't know if this gear is ready. Uh, but uh, he ends by saying to keep in step with the Spirit. It's, a, it's like a military term almost, uh, like almost like a, a line of, of soldiers who are following behind one another that Paul says. But the leader in this sense is the Spirit of God. That we are to actively come behind him. We are to actively put ourselves in ways where we are following his commands, where we are following his leadership. 
the way that this comes forth, that godliness comes forth, isn't by us just trying to produce it ourselves, just coming up with what we think is the best way to overcome these things. If, if we try to do it apart from the Spirit of God, I've heard people use the illustration, it's like taking a dead tree that has no leaves on it, that has no life in it, and trying to take like an apple and go staple it to a tree. It might look for a moment like it's alive and like it's good fruit, but there's no more fruit coming on that thing. Uh, Jesus said, you know a tree by its fruit, right? That, that you know an apple tree because it's making apples. You know uh, a peach tree because it's making peaches. Like we, we don't staple a fruit onto dead trees. We seek to be a living tree. We, we, we place our, if you want to use that analogy, we place our roots down into the ground of the Holy Spirit and the places he's told us to do it and the word that he inspired amongst the people people that he has saved. Uh, We plant our roots down into the places the Spirit has told us to, and then he's the one that then feeds us and and grows godliness in us and produces those fruit. But our responsibility, our seeking of godliness, is to place ourselves in those situations, to pursue those inputs from the Holy Spirit so that godliness comes in us. So he speaks clearly through his word. Keeping in step with him would mean that you read his word. That you pay attention when it's taught. That you pay attention when it's preached. The Spirit speaks through teachers and preachers of the Word. So you listen to people as they open up the Word for you. To parents as they teach the Word to you. The Spirit speaks through our brothers and sisters in Christ as we come to the Word together. And so you need to have community if you're to grow in godliness. You need to have people who are speaking into your life. And so we must keep in step with the Holy Spirit. We must seek to grow in godliness if godliness is going to be grown in us. I wanted to end by referencing one other song from Hamilton, from that character, uh, and I'm not going to sing this one either, uh, but later in that musical he sings a third song uh, that, that is called I Know Him, and what the context of this song is, is it comes later on in American history King George III comes back out on stage and he has heard who is going to become president after George Washington. And so he knew George Washington had been this notable figure, this commanding presence, this respected, revered person throughout the colonies. And then he has this uh, helper come and whisper in his ear who the second president of the United States is going to be. And he just laughs. He's like, John Adams? And he starts to kind of assume this guy is a joke. Like these people, he even says, uh, one of the lyrics is he says, oh, they're going to tear each other apart. Like he has no confidence that this new leader is going to unify people, that he's going to actually bring goodness into this country. He thinks it's going to be a train wreck that's just going to get worse and worse. Of course, he was wrong about that. Our country has done well, and we're ever improving, I believe. Um, but uh, he, the, the point there would be this, and why I wanted to end with this, is that there are some who would look at us and say, you're going to be led by the Holy Spirit? Like, you think he's going to change you? Like, you think he's the commander that's really going to bring about the change in your life? Yeah, right. Like, you're going to keep going back to your, your old wells. You're going to keep going back to your old habits. And the, these people of God, you say, together are guided by the Spirit. He's not going to do anything among you. There's people who are skeptical when we say we're led by the Holy Spirit. But we are not led by some mere mortal man who has flaws. Like, we are led by the Spirit of God. 
Like we have him living within us as individuals and we have him living within us as a collective church. We have a confident and a sure future if we follow him, right? Uh, we don't, it's not up to question and it's definitely not leading to, to disarray and to dysfunction and to disobedience. It's leading to quite the opposite. It's, if we follow his leadership, it's leading to more and more fruit. It's leading to more and more glory to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So godliness is possible. Godliness is not optional. Godliness is given by the Spirit, and godliness is sought by us. And by God's grace, He grants it to us. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray for